0: But in Adelaide, it's amazing. It's an insanely supportive, really fantastic community. And I, the thing I love the most about what I do is that I get to be part of that. Like, it's it's insane. I'm, I'm around all these stupidly talented people who inspire me every day. And it's not very often that you get to be in that kind of space with your work life.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Growing up in a food-loving family can have a long-lasting impact on what we value. It places emphasis on connection, health, sustenance, and a feeling of safety too. Those fond memories often lead people to shift careers and chance their arm in the food sector. Rose Adam is the co-owner of The Middle Store in Adelaide. Rose, how are you?
0: Good morning. How are you?
1: Good. It's um, good to get you on the show. You've um, got a food history in your family and um, a big love of food. Um, Is that that what drove you to move into the food sector?
0: Absolutely, yeah. We've grown up, you know, in a very, very big ethnic family. So, um, you know, we it was never really um, just, you know, mum and dad at home for dinner. It was go to an auntie or uncle's house. Everyone, all the aunties, uncles, cousins would all be at the same house, um, the aunties and the mums would be in the kitchen cooking, the dads would be out in the back, the kids would all be running around. Um, and we would do this every night. And then we'd all come together for dinner. And it's just something that we always did. And it's something that we've always known. And I've never really known it to be any other way. So food has always been 100% at the heart of every family occasion and event. So it's always been really important to me. And I think that that's um, yeah, definitely one of the biggest drivers for getting into the industry was wanting to share that with people, I think, that, that whole experience of family and community and eating and how we eat um, and wanting to sort of introduce people to that world.
1: You spent a lot of your career not in the food sector. Tell us about that period of time when the cog started to turn and you started to think, of veering towards food?
0: Yeah, I've been in corporate for about 15 years and I think the interesting thing about being in the corporate world is that you, you know, you're working for a passion for sure. Like you was passionate about what I was doing. I was, you know, a trainer. I was teaching people and educating people on how to do their jobs better, which was insanely rewarding. Um, but there was always this idea of climbing this corporate ladder um and i kind of climbed the corporate ladder and i had this huge job and i was living in melbourne and i was heading up this big you know, department and it was really exciting. And I'd kind of hit the peak of what I wanted to do with my career. Um, and I just remember thinking, I, I don't I don't know what's like, is this it now? Like, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> like, am I going to sit at, at board meetings and talk about how much money my work is making for the company? And it just started to slowly eat into my soul. Um, and it just the the whole idea of helping people and having that reward in that work was slowly going further and further away from me. And it just became more of a of a corporate life and I just remember thinking, I don't know that this is – I don't know if I can do this for another 15 years. Like I don't know that I can sit in these meetings with all these people crunching numbers and just talking about really mundane things. So, um, I was always – on the cusp of wanting to get out of the industry, but it's a huge leap and leaving a really well-paying job is scary. I had a mortgage and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, I was kind of like, I don't really know if this is something that I can do, Um, but I guess I got pushed. I had it, you know, we have – had a bit of loss in our family. So we have our older brother who was um, 40 at the time um, and he passed away very unexpectedly um, coming up to like, I think almost 10 years now. And um, that was when I was at the peak of my career and I was thinking about what to do next. And when he, you know, sort of died all of a sudden, it was a real wake up call. Like I just was literally within three months of that happening I quit my job and moved back to Adelaide I was like I don't want to do this anymore like life is so short and I can't believe that I'm going to sit in an office for the rest of my life not not happening and I just packed it all in so it just took a nudge it was a huge nudge and it was a nudge that I wish I didn't have obviously but that was the that was the driver for me I was like right this is it it's time now it's time to get out and and just do something different. And I still didn't know what that was. I didn't, I hadn't quite made the leap into food at that point. Um, but I knew that it wasn't staying where I was. So, um, yeah, it's interesting what pushes you really, isn't it? Well,
1: tell us about that leap into food and the decision process there and, and what it was like.
0: Um, the leap into food was weird. <laughs> it was a weird process. We had, so my little brother, George, my older sister, Hafer, and I um, had grown up in a family business. So we had a deli, um, I don't know, milk bar, I think they call it in some places. Um, and we had literally spent our entire lives working behind the counter and growing up and in that small business. Um, and we'd always, always talked about opening a cafe, always. Like we'd always said, oh, we should open a cafe. Yeah, we will do it. And we, we'd always had those conversations. And it was always one of those things that you sat down at Christmas time and spent stupid amount of hours talking about, but never actually did. Um, so then, when all of this sort of happened, um, it pushed us all towards wanting to do that with each other. We had to sell the family business because it was our older brother's business at that point. So, we we sold the deli and what's next? Well, let's, let's do this cafe. So, we just started planning it. Um, we all kept our jobs. We all kept working. Um, and then it just, I don't know, a few things happened. It's a timing thing. It's a weird timeline. I won't bore you with all the details, but pretty much we... Started planning, we started looking for a space, I was still in my, you know, really shitty corporate job, you know, just living the mundane life, Um, and then I somehow decided to make the ridiculous decision to audition for MasterChef. So I was like, I'm just going to do it. And the reason that I did it was because my late older brother would constantly tell me that you should go on there. Like I'd always loved cooking. I'd always had a passion for it. I did all the baking for the family events and cakes and Every birthday he'd request cakes and I'd always make them for him and that was something he always wanted for me and I feel like out of some weird weird sense of obligation I had to do it. Um, So I put my hat in the ring and I got on, um, which was insane, and did that. And while we were doing that, we were still – building this business in the background so I'm off filming doing these crazy challenges and my little brother and my older sister are scouting for venues and meeting with you know landlords and suppliers and producers (laughs) and so it was kind of the most chaotic time to open a business but it just yeah and at this point we hadn't found a venue like we were still looking for a space um and then when I left the show I literally got kicked out Got home, spent the entire night crying at mum's because I was exhausted. Um, And then the next morning, my little brother rang me and said, I think I found our venue. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I was like, dude, I need like a week. He's like, you have to come and see. I think this is it. And I just remember driving up to the shop. Um, and it was this dingy looking blue. Everything was blue. That's what I remember. Everything was blue. And I just remember walking in, and I just, as soon as I stepped foot in, my heart just sank because I was like, oh shit, this is it. Like, this is the space. Like, I am literally coming off this roller coaster of this show, and now we're going to open it. So it's a weird time frame. I know people sort of say, how'd you get into the space and how'd you get into food? But that was it. It was this weird culmination of losing someone. Wanting to honor his memory, and then doing this show, and then and it all happened within, you know, the space of you know a few of a year, year and a half. Like it was all really quick and and sudden. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. Hope that kind of made sense that time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to explore that moment and beyond it shortly. But take us back to when you were young. You you started telling us about the big extended family and the feasts. Is there any dishes or feasts that you can Tell us about um, that sort of exemplify that upbringing?
0: Oh, absolutely. So, we would all get together um, for birthdays. So, we we did this thing where we all had joint birthday parties. So, my sister and I were a month apart. Um, so, anyone that had a birthday in the first three months of the year, we would have a birthday party all together. Um, so, yeah. So, it was really special. We all felt really loved. Um, we all felt really unique. Um, so, um, my sister and I always had our birthdays together. Um, every year, we would have a cake each. So, we got our own cake. So don't feel sorry for us. We'll fine. Um, so we um, have these massive parties where we get all our cousins. Um, I'm talking like you know, 40, 50 cousins. Like we've got a really big family. Like every mum has 10 brothers and sisters. Dad has 10 brothers and sisters. Half of them lived in Adelaide and they all had kids. So, um, you know, we would all be at mum and dad's house and, you know, the house was tiny and my, you know, my memories are so vivid. Like uh, it's more the sounds and the smells that I would remember. So, you know, you'd walk into the kitchen and all my aunties wore the gold bangles, you know, those, you know, sort of the Lebanese women, they all with these gold bangles and one of my most vivid memories is coming in and they would use their hands. They didn't use utensils for anything. Like their hands were their utensils and they'd have these big buckets and like one would be mixing salads and all I could hear were the clanking of the gold Bangles. Like, that's my I, every time I could hear all those gold bangles, and they all wore them. So, they all have like three or four on their arms. And I could hear that sound, and I'd be like, all right, there's something happening in the kitchen. And they'd all be gossiping in Arabic and talking. And, you know, like my auntie, Julie, she makes the world's best tabbouleh. Like, no one ever makes a tabbouleh better than hers. And no one's allowed to make tabbouleh if she's around. So, um, you know, so she would always make tabbouleh. Mum would make this dish called samki harado, which was this whole fish roasted on the barbecue. Um, and it was was covered in this tahini chili sauce with, you know, buttered almonds and all these beautiful fresh herbs. And it was absolutely insanely delicious. And that was her sort of like thing. And she'd have this big tray of of fish. And there'd always be one of which were the vine leaves with the meat and the rice sort of rolled up. I guess dolmades are what people might know them as, Um, you know. And so there'd always be a pot of that you know, sort of simmering away on the cooktop and, you know, and those smells, you know, the fish and the salad and the meat coming off the vine leaves, like that was when you knew that it was a party. And those events, you know, we did that for all our cousins. So every time anyone had a birthday, it would be the same thing just at someone else's house. Um, And they're the most, you know, they're the things that like I think about now, like growing up, and I think like those moments, those memories are the things that really connected me To food and love, like that's how they showed us how much they loved us. That's how they showed us that they cared for us was that they would spend – days preparing for these meals like it wasn't just coming in the morning like they'd go shopping they'd go um foraging you know we call it foraging now but it makes me laugh when people say we're going foraging like mum, mum, like you know I can't explain to you Mum would keep a plastic bag and a knife in her boot and she would pull over on the side of the road if she saw persiline growing on the side of the road she's like oh you know let's get some persiline and oh look at that badunis or parsley like I'm going to chop that off and you know so she would you know they'd pick like vine leaves off the side of people's you know homes and you know I mean that's probably I probably shouldn't say that because it's illegal but um you know so that's the sort of stuff like they would prepare for these events by doing things like that going to the markets getting all their food and then they'd cook for us and I just think those memories for me like I just remember that feeling of just inclusiveness and just warmth and happiness and joy and all of that was just surrounded by this messy, chaotic, noisy, smelly kitchen, um, and that's that was growing up for me. Like that was everything. I can't imagine it any other way now.
1: Tell us what it was like trying to come up with the concept for the middle store with your siblings. Was there a lot of heated debate and trying to like, when you were trying to land on the right idea for it?
0: Yeah, I mean it was. Yes and no. Like the reason that it's called the middle store um, was because the original concept for the space was fine dining. Um, so wow. with, yeah, I know. Can you believe it? Like what, what idiots. <laughs> um, this is me. The only experience I have in a kitchen is working on MasterChef. Like, yeah, let's open a fine dining restaurant, why don't we? Um, you come out really cocky from that show. I tell you what, you're full of beans and you're not really sure why. Um, so, yeah, we, um, we had wanted to do a – A fine dining sort of experience that replicated those family dinners, you know, those barbecues. Like we wanted it to be share plates, big, messy share plates of food. You know, we wanted people to know what it was like when we had those birthday parties and those lunches and those barbecues and we wanted to do that sort of thing but just in a restaurant sort of setting. Um, So when we sort of started planning that, um, we realised that we were way in over our heads and there was no way in hell we were going to be able to pull that off. Um, So then we pared it back and went, well, what if we just did it? cafe style because um you know we could still do the food that we love but we could just do it in a more relaxed setting um and it's sort of in the middle of where we want to be with our journey like we started with the deli you know one day we'll end up with the fine dining space but let's just start with this cafe get our foot in the industry um and then we can move on hence why it's called the middle store um a lot of people think it's called the middle store because it's middle eastern food but that didn't even occur to us at the time um that's how switched on we were can I tell you that is how switched on we were um and then that we sort of slowly started working back from well instead of feeding people what we would eat at these barbecues let's talk about what we eat on a sunday morning and sunday mornings um i don't know if you know this about ethnic households but it's like a it's there's a constant open door policy no one tells you that they're coming over i just walk in so um you have no privacy or freedom to do anything in your own home, Um, which I would never – I can't do that now. That's the one thing I've not taken with me is that open-door policy. Um, But um, on a Sunday morning, like – they'd go to church. All the oldies would go to church in the morning and then they'd all come back and, you know, mum would get the big frying pan out with Uncle Joe's olive oil because Uncle Joe made his own olive oil. And, you know, she'd put the frying pan, fill it up with oil, crack a million eggs into it. Um, You know, somebody would bring bread from the Lebanese bakery with the manoushi, you know, and then they'd, you know, put the eggs out and then the labneh would come out and the olives and the tomato and the cucumber from someone's garden and I'll just go pick some mint from the backyard and that would all come out mare's air style on the table and you'd all just dive in and that's what we'd have for breakfast. And, you know, it was like, well, you know, the coffee was brewing, you know, the little, you know, coffee pot was going and Uncle Hasid would bring his homemade ouzo um, that we'd have after and that was, that was breakfast for us on a Sunday. And I was like, well, what if we just, what if we went off that? Like, that, what if that was what we shared with people and that was pretty much how we came up with the concept and it wasn't hard we didn't argue we didn't fight we just knew we just knew that that's what we wanted we wanted to share that whole world with people and share that community with them and um yeah there wasn't much argument on the concept the menu on the other hand yeah that was yeah it was the whole time that was a whole time because I didn't want to put avocado toast on the menu I refused Um, and my sister was like, how do you have a cafe without avocado toast? And I'm like, watch me watch me. And I still don't. So um, I put my foot down. I was like, we don't eat avocado toast in this house. And we don't poach eggs either. That was the other thing. We don't eat poached eggs in Middle Eastern food. It's not a thing that we do. We eat fried eggs or we eat scrambled eggs. Um, And I was like, I'm sticking to that. So we don't do poached eggs at the cafe. And that was another thing that we got into a massive argument about um, was me not wanting to do poached eggs because it wasn't true to what we did. It wasn't what we ate. It's not how we lived. So um, we wanted to keep it as genuine to the to that experience as we could.
1: Was it hard translating the food that you experienced from your memories as, as a child and, and your mother's food into that cafe setting?
0: Absolutely. It was so difficult because we didn't eat. There was nothing refined about how we ate. Like there was no, it was, there was no, oh my God, we didn't even eat with plates half the time. Like you just chuck everything in a piece of Lebanese bread and roll it up and Have it drip down your arm as you sat out in the backyard. So it's there was trying to just the food, the concept of the flavors, and you know what we wanted to do. Yeah, it was tricky trying to work out how do we how do we turn that manushi with the lubni and the eggs and the olives in it um, from wrapped up in a piece of tissue paper to a beautiful piece of thing that we can put on a plate that we can actually sell to people and they'll be happy to pay for it. So it was there was a lot of experimenting. There was a lot of you know, playing around and, you know, the the ingredients never changed. It was more just how do we make it look a little bit more appetising and a little bit more safe to approach. We were really nervous that people wouldn't understand what Zatar was, what Labneh was. You know, we were really nervous that people would go, oh, what do you mean? It's just yogurt. It's like, oh, it's just yogurt, but we just take all the water out of it. And, you know, so we had to find ways to explain things to people and present them in a way that was familiar so it still looked like cafe food and sounded like cafe food. Um, it just had the different ingredients in it. So it was, you know, it was a real education process for us because, we had never really had to explain our food to anyone before because we didn't really hang out with anyone else but ourselves. I mean, you have 50 cousins. You don't need a, you don't need friends. You have cousins. So, yeah.
1: And, uh, is, are there a couple of dishes that you can tell us about that are on the menu that kind of exemplify what you're doing?
0: There's two. There's two that I um, am absolutely in love with and they're my favourites. And anytime people come, I always say, you've got to try either one of these two. So, um, one of them is the breakfast Manoushi, um because I didn't know until – we'd opened this cafe that other Lebanese people didn't eat eggs and labneh together um, in a manushi, because that's how we always ate it um, and I just assumed that everybody else did and then I realised that other Lebanese people were like, you put eggs and manushi and labneh together? That's really crazy. Um, so we, we didn't realise how revolutionary we were but um, it's literally just a manushi with the zata. I don't know if people know what that is but just a flatbread and it has this beautiful zata. Seasoning on it with olive oil and we just toast it, fold it in half so it kind of looks like a pasty sort of shape and we put fresh labneh in there with some baby spinach, scrambled eggs and just fresh tomato, a bit of salt and pepper and that's it. Um, and it is beautiful. Um, the eggs are really soft. We don't, you know, we, we go we go for a really wet scramble. Um, so you still get that messy kind of vibe that we sort of had but it's that just a little bit more refined so that's one of my favorite dishes it's simple it's fresh it's um you know there's nothing crazy about it but it is really really delicious um and then the other one is the maize plate so the maize plate's our version of a big breakfast um and this is the one that is pretty much how we would eat on a Sunday morning, um, you know, it's all those things that we sort of, you know, would have, but just in a smaller version. So a couple of fried eggs, like eggs that have been fried in some olive oil, um, a manoushi, some Lebanese sausage, um, fresh cucumber, fresh tomato, some olives and some labneh with some olive oil in the middle. Um, and it's kind of like you just choose your own adventure and eat them as you go and you pick at it so yeah they're the two things that I you know always say to people give them a go and I think that the thing that people are really surprised about with Lebanese food is that um, whilst all these things sound insanely exotic when you actually break them down they're just they're really not that crazy like it's you know it's herbs it's fresh produce it's things that have really you know delicious flavor to them but they're not crazy weird things that you you know your brain can't comprehend like as soon as you start eating them it's like well it's just a beautiful herb bread like manushi is just a beautiful herb bread so um yeah so putting all those things together on that mezze play and in the breakfast manushi um that's us like that's our family that's our breakfasts that's our culture just in a way that is a bit more presentable and understandable to people
1: were there benefits um, from your corporate life that you um moved into your food life uh, having had that experience was there any Anything that helped with running a food business?
0: Oh, my God, how to actually run a business, 100%. So, um, one, of the, one of the jobs that I had prior to, you know, the food life was um, I was working – can I say where I was working? Is that like allowed? I don't know. Um, so, I was working at Bunnings. Um, I worked at Bunnings for about five years um, and I um, – wrote a leadership program for them. So I worked on a team, not just by myself, um, but I wrote a leadership program for them um, on how to run – Um, you know how to run a department basically so this is for the people that ran you know like the tool section or the you know or the paint section so the managers of those sections and it was how to read a profit and loss statement how to manage your costs how to roster how to budget for you know um, you know loss and you know low sales and how to boost sales and advertising and all that sort of stuff so um, you know I worked with a team we wrote this management program we delivered it we assessed people on it I was like we basically had to give them a certificate, a diploma um, in management. So, we were running an in-house diploma in management program for them. Um, So, I had to assess them and check them and make sure that, you know, they were doing things properly. So, I had to learn how to run a business like from start to finish to be able to write this program. Um, and then I had to go and do that at my next job at Specsavers where it was, you know, the same thing, but these were people that actually franchisees that bought into the business. So were, it was a bigger, way, way more huge responsibility. Um, so then I had to write another program for that, for them. So, Learning how to run a business, learning how to read a profit and loss statement, learning how to roster people, how to manage those costs, how to um, coach people, how to have conversations with people, like, you know, not getting frustrated when someone doesn't do things the way that you want them to, actually being able to understand their perspective and talk to them and all those sort of things, they were invaluable. I don't think that we would have been as successful as we have been had we not had and my sister had the same background as well so she was a um she worked at at the University of Victoria doing pretty much the same thing but just for a university as well so between the two of us we had all of this knowledge on how to run a business and it's the same like it's the same thing it doesn't matter what kind of business you're running at the end of the day, you're there to make money. How you make money, profit and loss statements look the same no matter which business you're walking into. Um, Staffing is the same. Rostering is the same. Like, yeah, there's some small tweaks, but all those concepts, you can pick them up and apply them to any business. So for us it was, you know, we felt confident that we could run that side of the business really well. It was just learning, you know, how to manage costs in a kitchen, Um, you know, how to price up a menu, like those little things They took a little time for me to sort of get my head around. Um, Not much, but I figured it out pretty quickly. But, yeah, it was those sort of things that really, really helped us. So I just don't know that we would have lasted as long um, because the very first thing we learned going into business was to, you know, keep your your investment of capital really low when you open a new business. (laughs) Don't borrow a lot of money. Our game plan was pretty straightforward. It was if this goes bust and we absolutely fail at this, Um, how much can we each take on in debt to be able to pay off and not ruin our lives? Um, that was literally the conversation that we had. So we set it up really cheap. My little brother, God bless him literally was there every single night. He pretty much built the entire space, you know, with his with his hands and a couple of mates and we're very lucky. We have a cousin who is a very well-renowned architect in Adelaide um, and he was so excited for us. He came in and basically just project managed the whole thing for us. So um, this is what – this is the benefit of having like 50 cousins because they all – we're always connected to someone that can do something. So, um, yeah, so it was invaluable having all that corporate knowledge um, was insanely helpful. And this is what I say to people now. Anytime someone says to me, oh, I want to open a cafe, how do I do it? Go do a business course, 100%. There's no other way to do it. Start off with a business course and learn the learn that side of it. Once you know that side of it, you, you, you're unstoppable after that.
1: What surprised you about running a cafe?
0: Um, How hard it was. <laughs> <laughs> how many hours you have to put in? I was astounded at how many days and hours and you know, like it, it was. It's it's hard. Like it, what's hard about it is that you're, you know, you're so connected to it. Like everything is. You can't be pragmatic when you run your own business. It's really hard to to separate yourself from the emotion of it because it's you. Like it's your heart and soul. And I didn't realize how sensitive I was. I had no idea. How personally I took anyone that didn't like it, or anyone that put in a complaint or gave us feedback that they weren't happy about. Like, I, it would destroy me. Like, the first time someone told me they didn't like a dish, I sat in the toilet and cried for five minutes because I was like, I'm letting everyone down. Like, this is me. I'm running this kitchen. People come to the cafe for food. It's 60% of our profit margin comes from the food. You know, coffee doesn't make you that much money. It's all down to the kitchen. So I was, like, freaking out because every time somebody wasn't happy, I just didn't realize how much I would take on that responsibility of, being the person that let them down. Um, And it was hard because I wasn't working with strangers. I was working with my brother and sister. Um, And they had given up everything to do this as well. So, we were really on the line here. So, I, I think the thing that surprised me the most was just that, like how hard it was to hear or to see when things didn't go well and how personally I took it because it was, um, yeah, it was a lot of time and effort that went into it and when someone didn't like it, it was like someone just stabbing me in the chest. It was really, really hardcore. Um, And the hours, just the hours. Man, it's really messed up how many hours you work. So messed up. Like it never ends. You start and finish your day at the cafe but then you stay for another three hours just to do all the other stuff. So Um, Yeah, I didn't realize how much hard work it was going to be. I knew it was going to be hard. I just didn't realize how much it was going to be, yeah, a
1: challenge. Has this move into food changed you?
0: A hundred percent. Oh, my goodness. like I didn't realize how boring I was in my corporate life. (laughs) i didn't realize how much i talked about my job i didn't realize that i was one of those people that when you when you said to them oh hi how are you going really good work's just been really busy and you just launched straight into what's happening at work you know like I, I became one of those people and i didn't realize that i had become one of those people until i started working in this industry because you know i i didn't want to talk about the cafe when i wasn't at the cafe Cause it just consumed my entire life. So I was like, I have to be way more interesting of a person um, because man, this is just going to destroy me. I can't be this person that talks about my business and lives it seven days a week. It's too much. So I was definitely became a more interesting person, but I think it, it made me stronger um, in a sense that, like, I've always been a strong-minded, you know, driven person, um, but it kind of unlocked a different kind of strength in me, a real resilience. It made my skin a lot thicker. Um, I'm definitely not as sensitive as I used to be. If someone doesn't like something now, I'm like, great, let's talk about it. What didn't you like? And I can sort of be a bit more pragmatic about it. Whereas I think before I'd be like, I hate you. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. Get out of my cafe. Um, So, you know, it's definitely given me that ability to take on feedback in a whole nother way that I would never have been able to have done before. Um, You know, I'm more open to it now. I'm definitely more receptive to hearing people's thoughts and I kind of welcome it a bit more. And I think it's definitely made me more appreciative of my family's history and background. Like, you know. My parents, my aunties, all migrants, all opened up their own business and I never realised how hard they worked until I had to do it and now I understand that and it's made me a much more – open and appreciative of my own culture and my own background. And I always was, but now I have a whole new level for it and a whole new respect that I've tapped into that I didn't even know was there. So, it's yes, yeah, 100% it's changed me, definitely.
1: What's next for you?
0: Um, that's a really damn good question. <laughs> I really don't know. I've, um, you know, I'm at a point now where I, I don't know, I really want to start exploring um you know, another concept, like the idea of another business, um, yeah, that's that's definitely something that's on the cards. Um, I don't know what that business looks like yet. Um, definitely not going to be hospo in the way that we're doing it now. Um, maybe something slightly different. So I have a few ideas but nothing that I kind of want to talk about yet because I don't want to jinx it. Um, I definitely want to write a cookbook. I feel like that's just something that um, – I feel like is a rite of passage for any Master Chef contestant is to write a cookbook and everyone else has done it. So God, I have to do it now. Um, but I want it to be a slightly different, you know, I just want it to be about my life and growing up and food. And I want to share those recipes with people. So that's, that's a little project that's kind of always simmering away in the background. I kind of work on it every now and again. Um, and then who knows, I mean, I'm so open to things right now. I feel like, um, you know, I feel like the the biggest lesson I've learned in the last, you know, we've been open now for seven years. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned in that last seven years is that you really don't know what's around the corner and you can plan as much as you want. You can put all the spreadsheets together. You can do all the analysis. You can, you know, think about things and talk about things, but life will definitely throw you a curveball, and you're going to have to sort of think on your feet and, and, you know, move as quickly and adjust as much as you can. So right now I'm, have these loose ideas of things that I'd like to do and we'll see where they go so that's a really bad answer I have nothing for you I don't know what's next for Rose I don't know let's just survive and get through the rest of the year and we'll see what's next
1: well your energy is amazing and you're doing some amazing things there in Adelaide what do you love about what you do
0: um I love that oh so many things but I think the biggest thing I love the most is the community that I'm in um I have been welcomed into this hospital community in Adelaide with big open loving arms I've made so many friends in the industry and I'm so I feel so lucky because I feel like that whole community and I don't know what it's like in other states but in Adelaide it's amazing it's an insanely supportive really fantastic community and I, the thing I love the most about what I do is that I get to be part of that like it's it's insane I'm, I'm around all these stupidly talented people who inspire me every day and it's not very often that you get to be in that kind of space with your work life so um, that's the thing I love the most is being a part of that for sure and feeding people just making people happy. my God, come and eat cake and drink coffee and let's talk about, you know, mundane things and be happy about it. It's excellent.
1: Well, Rose, it's been an absolute joy having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a bit of your story. Um, Good luck with the cookbook. Keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Such a thrill.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep.